Blog Talk Radio. Hi, it's Adriel Hampton, host of Government 2.0 Radio, here with my co-host Steve Lunsford from GovTwit and Steve Ressler from GovLoop. Uh, Today we're talking about monitoring uh, acquisition uh, in the government. Uh, We'll be speaking with uh, Mary Davey from the GSA and also uh, Noel Dickover, who is one of the uh, brains behind, um, I guess, DODtopedia. If, if I'm saying it right, which is a uh, acquisition uh, discussion wiki. And we'll be uh, looking at how can we make the government uh, procurement arm uh, more responsive uh, and uh, modern in terms of, uh, of getting folks the things they need when they need them. And uh, so excited to have those two great guests with us today. I know that uh, Mary is uh, one of the uh, real movers and shakers uh, at GovLoop, and so excited to have her. And um, we'll also be talking a little bit about the OGI conference. And uh, Steve uh, Ressler and Steve Lunsford, both of you were there? That's correct. It was a, uh, uh, you know, let's, uh, Steve actually, I think, um, Ressler, Mr. GovLoop, had a presentation there as well. I'll, I'll speak to the kickoff, which I thought was one of the best um, openings for for any kickoff. We had folks from the DOD, we had uh um Anish Chopra and, and uh and and Tim O'Reilly kind of right in a row there the the opening morning. And for folks that were following the hashtag which was uh pound OGI, uh there was a, a quite a bit of uh of uh of live tweeting going on during those those initial keynotes to the fact to the point where I think that that first morning the the conference rose to uh, turning topics on Twitter to number four, so to the point where we actually saw some spam coming across using that same uh, same hashtag. So I think um, at least you know it started off really great. Uh, I know I, I attended a couple others. I missed uh, the second day uh, for for other obligations, but uh, I think Steve was there both days. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a it was a great time. I missed actually the first half, so and cover day too. I was on a a panel in the afternoon with uh, Andrew Kurzmarzik at Crazy Chris from the grad school and LaVisa William I'm blanking on her last name, but LaVisa Talk at LaVisa Talk from the State Department. And uh, it was fun. It was actually my first time I tweeted from state, so that was kind of fun uh, to see the tweets on the the, the panels at the side. And uh, there are were just like a crazy amount of uh, tweets from the conference and can either just search that tag or uh, on GovLoop. I think we've actually broken it down into six blog posts um, with all the good tweets. And uh, there's actually a pretty interesting blog post, and I think maybe we can discuss it with Noel and uh, Mary come on too, uh, about kind of the mixed feelings about the conference, uh, which has, uh, I think, 25 or 30 comments on GovLoop. It's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting dialogue about you know where Gov2.0 is and, uh, some of the, the frustrations that some people have of, you know, some agencies are rocking and rolling while other people want to do a lot, but uh, they're still kind of blocked from access or, or leadership. So uh, there's some really great gems in there, so I encourage people to check out that, and especially the comments. And now OGI was Open Government Innovations, is that the... Uh... Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and the 1105 group, the folks, same folks who published uh, FCW and... and uh, uh, government Computer News and Washington Technology were, were kind of the, the sponsors behind it. But I think they had a 
a really good mix of folks, like Steve said. There were, um, you know, about 500 or so people, I guess, over the course of the two days that, that participated. Uh, I, I think they had a really good mix of keynotes. I, I haven't had a chance to really look at all the uh, the, the follow-up that Steve's talking about over at GovLoop, but I think the keynotes were all pretty solid. I think it's it's some of those other sessions that folks are looking at. Um, as, you, as Steve said, there's, there's a lot of agencies. If you look at uh, folks like CDC and HHS and FDA that have done a tremendous amount in the 2.0 space, and then you've got other agencies that feel either stymied or hampered or they haven't feel, feel like they just haven't been able to get um, – get off the ground the way they want to. So hopefully, uh, and maybe that's something Mary can comment on, being from GSA, hopefully that, uh, uh, you know, now that there, there have been agreements signed with a lot of the different social platforms um, and that the, uh, the, you know, that very clearly both uh, Anish and then Vivek uh, Kundra, the CIO and the CTO, the first ever CIO and CTO in the executive branch, um, very clearly, uh, you know, saying that they, they anticipate these tools they want agencies to start using these tools uh, to help them meet their mission, to do things like acquisition, things like what we're going to talk about later today. So um, the hope is, is that, that you see more and more agencies start to take the lead of or start to follow the lead of some of the early adopters and start to drive it through, not just to, uh, you know, to do it just to do it, but to do it to actually help them meet their missions, to help them uh, when it comes to recruitment, to help them when it comes to, um, pro you know, project management, things of that nature. So... And it'll be interesting to talk to, uh, to to get Mary's take on that here in a few minutes. Yeah. Anything else? You, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Is that you, wrestler? Yeah, sorry about that. But I guess one good example, um, I think people want to check out that was released this week. Um, DHS went ahead and uh, redid their site, dhs.gov, um, as well as linking to their, their Twitter feed. And uh, they have a new YouTube channel. So that's uh, person kind of one of the brainstorms behind that is uh, at Gwinnett. Uh, Gwen Costin, G-W-Y-N-N-E-K. She's also on uh, GovLoop. She's a great follow and has a good blog, too, on .gov. And uh, so it's interesting to see uh, an another good example of uh, progress being made in, in the space. Yeah, but look, so let me ask you guys a question. So I heard, I saw, uh, you know, I pushed out something earlier this week, you know, tremendous growth of people using Twitter, uh, government users growing about 1,300% or so over the past eight months. You had... Uh, uh, you know, a video that was shown with uh, Megan Phillips from the White House talking about all the things that government is doing. And then, uh, you know, they've got their Twitter ID, they've got their MySpace ID, they've got a Facebook page. And then you've got, uh, uh, you know, the chief spokesman for the White House that goes on with CNN and says that Twitter is blocked at the White House itself. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can take that. I think that just shows uh, kind of where we are in, in the progress of the movement uh, of that. Uh, I think most of the best practices, as people say, they're, they're generally being done through a loophole. So I was on a, a one panel with uh, one of the w women from the Coast Guard who was doing a, a lot of the great work and was doing it with a couple laptops on air cards because their network blocked the sites. Um, so I still think there's a lot of that going on where, you know, one side in the organization may be really getting it, wanting to do it, but uh, the other part uh, hasn't caught up yet. Too, and uh, you know, I think that's what's kind of happening in the in the White House internal IT side. You know, they're probably worried about um, the security because of all the important documents they have. But the the public affairs people, you know, want to do all these things, and they are. So they're probably firing up air cards and figuring a way around the system. Yeah. How do you guys handle out there, uh, Adriel, from from the San Francisco standpoint, from the city standpoint? Is it is it blocked for you? 
Um, it is not blocked at my agency, and I don't think it's blocked really at, at any of the agencies. I know that we've got uh, our attorneys and uh, our Department of Technology working on putting together an official social media policy, which which is hard because there's not a terrible uh, amount of groundwork laid on the issue. I mean, I've been critical and uh, have given kudos to different uh, government agencies particularly some of the counties around D.C. that have actually put together policies. Uh, but it's, it, is, it is hard work to actually think about how you can have a policy that's open uh, but that does address uh, potentialities. We talked to Macon Phillips um, through, you know, from the city of San Francisco trying to get uh, input, and one of the things that was interesting from their experience is they have lawyers who are basically on for the ride rather than having uh, a policy that spells out everything you can and can't do and every potentiality. They have folks there for if trouble does occur uh, to address it. And uh, it seems like the way that the space is evolving, that almost might be the uh, the way to go because you have so many uh, you know different channels, different social media outlets. Like you could block Twitter and then people just figure out something else to use. Right. And uh, or they'd figure out a way to just spin. You know, you use a third-party platform that is Twitter but is not blocked, uh, and then you have it. So, you know, and in two years we'll probably all be using something totally different, or one of the third-party platforms may be the main way people access Twitter. So, uh, developing policy in this really fast-moving environment is is terribly uh, difficult, really. So, hats off to those who've done it successfully. Uh, and, and I guess we're all um, happy that there haven't been more uh, problems with government agencies using uh, these technologies. Um, let's go ahead and bring uh, uh, Mary on. Uh, hi, uh, Mary David, are you with us? Yep, I'm here. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. And um, you have a uh, quite a, uh, a title. It is uh, your commissioner uh, at the GSA for Acquisition Services. Is that? I'm one of the assistant commissioners. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and um, definitely want to jump right into a conversation about uh, government acquisition, which I think is probably one of the um, the areas that doesn't move terribly fast, uh, and also is terribly important for making the government more efficient. Yeah, um, and that's exactly right. I think in the acquisition community, we just have so many challenges when you think about all of the dollars that the government spends um, to get their mission accomplished. And, you know, we've had lots of, um, I guess, fear for many years now that there's going to be a retirement tsunami, we're going to lose all of the qualified acquisition folks that we have. Um, And at the same time, we've got sort of the increased challenge across the government of uh, you know, changing technology, trying to keep up with that and the way that we buy, um, trying to keep our procurement methods kind of up to date and make sure that we're supporting the program so that they can get their missions accomplished. And uh, so, you know, just the complexity in all of that um, and trying to move toward things like procurement-based acquisition and get the folks trained and able to uh, make those kinds of decisions um, that's kind of really, you know, what the challenge is, is how do we buy things efficiently, effectively, um, better, and continuing to support that acquisition workforce, which is really just sort of, you know, one network within uh, larger networks um, to get missions accomplished. 
So, Mary, this is Steve Lunsford. So, so how do you think some of the new kind of collaborative technologies or tools could come to play there? I know there have been a couple of posts over at, um, at GovLoop that Andrew Chris Marzik and others have, have talked about kind of how social media can improve federal acquisition. What are, your, what are some of your thoughts or what are some of the GSA, what is the GSA thought about using these types of technologies to, to help kind of uh, uh, bring acquisition to the, kind of the, to the next level? Well, actually, the thoughts, um, the cool part about this is on GovLoop, the Acquisition 2.0 group is up to it's like over 250 people now. And I started this group to talk about, you know, what are some things that we can be doing within the acquisition community to be innovative and take advantage of uh, Web 2.0 tools and technology, um, make changes to our processes and our policies so that we can do things, you know, kind of better, faster, cheaper, and keep up and really um, deliver those mission results. So we have a whole bunch of discussions going on right now in the GovLoop group around acquisition. And uh, because the group, there's so many people engaged and involved in offering ideas both from government as well as the private sector and even um, uh, state government, local government. So, for instance, uh, Jay Nath at the city of San Francisco posted something the other day about, you know, using a collaborative software selection uh, methodology to get comments there to see what people's reactions are. But Andy um, specifically has just kind of exploded with all kinds of ideas on using uh, Gov or social, uh, Web 2.0 technologies to support acquisition. And if you think about acquisition, there's really we always look at it in three phases. So you have your kind of what we call pre-award, where you're trying to go out and determine, you know, number one, what do we want to buy? What are we trying to do? Um, and then who in the industry has those solutions for us. So that's what we call kind of the, the pre-award. And then you go through the award phase where you're actually evaluating solutions and, and, and making a contract award. And unfortunately, a lot of what we focus on today in the acquisition community is on that award phase just because we are so – we're just pushed to get awards made as quickly as possible so that missions can continue. And then there's the post-award um, phase where you're actually managing now this this contract and this solution, and um, so you, if you look at it in those three perspectives, uh, we can apply. I think, and I think a lot of people think, um, Web 2.0 technologies to each of those three phases. And so, um, Andy posted a couple things. One is ten ways social media will improve federal acquisition, and it's really neat because he categorizes it around uh, people and process. Um, and specifically talking about things that we can do to even just do knowledge sharing between people and things that support succession planning and things that support um, knowledge management and collaboration because we're really trying to get to how do we make the acquisition process and just our culture more collaborative and open you know, across government and industry lines um, to improve those results. So he's got all kinds of very specific ideas on how to take advantage of Web 2.0 technology, which I think are all doable. I mean, we really do need to look at the culture um, that we've got today and why we kind of operate the way that we do. And we also obviously have to address um, all of the other things that everybody's talking about when you talk about government and 2.0, like paperwork reduction, privacy, security, Section 508, all of those kinds of things within the context of um, you know how we deal with the FAR, to get acquisitions uh, completed, but there are a ton of ideas that are floating around out there that um, we'd like to start implementing. And I know that Noel's going to come on and talk about 
uh, DOD Techopedia and Defense Solutions as one way that they've looked at innovating um, collaboration and, and acquisition. Noel, do you want to jump on and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, some of the projects you're working on with DOD and the acquisition arena? Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, Noel Dickover, um, working at the DOD CIO. Uh, the project Mary's talking about, we, we, we worked with her a, a little while already, and actually in the acquisition to OPART and GovLoop, have a nice, uh, Mary wrote a nice description about DOD Techopedia and DefenseSolutions.gov. Uh, we use the DefenseSolutions.gov site, which is online now, really is a crowdsourcing mechanism to get um, versus normally we're going to have the government sort of detail out in the requirements process, and in the DOD it may take a couple years to get through it. Um, you know, what is it we actually need? And then we go out to the private sector with an RFP. This approach is really where we say, let's just describe the problem and have uh, the innovation and industry come in and say, uh, here's some options to think about, and if we like those ideas, we'll go ahead and fund them through this means called other transactions authorities. So uh, the one we have up there now is on battlefield forensics, which just you know, in brief is sort of like CSI for the battle space. An event occurs, you go there, there's powder, there's residue. Soldiers need just a, a, something they can carry in their pocket that can test to see what actually occurred. Is this powder gunpowder? Is it cocaine? You know, what, what, what actually uh, occurred at this, this site? And so we posted this up there. And the response, you don't need to give a detailed RFP or anything like that. Just literally fill out five fields of 2,000 characters or less. We, the first group of them, we got 37 responses. Over 50% had never done work with the department before. And we're already funding six of them or in the process of. We have another group of another 30 ideas that we're working. And, and so this hopefully gets from problem to solution in the battlefield dramatically quicker than the traditional acquisition process. So to okay. some extent they're telling you what they have and what they can envision, uh, and they're closer to the reality of, of what that is than if you just uh, designed a spec without knowing exactly what was out in the marketplace? Right. So, I mean, we don't care if they give us a Star Trek spectrometer or a series of high school test tubes. As long as it gets the job done, uh, that, that's all we're looking for. And, and the normal process is we give what are called these uh, key performance parameters or KPPs, you know, detailed descriptions of make me a box that's this heavy and does these many things and, you know, shoots out this amount of stuff. And here we're just saying, give me your idea. I don't care if you have an X2-star admiral to market us or not. I don't care how many years' experience you have in the missile industry supply chain or whether you know about the FAR or any of that stuff. Just give me your idea to solve this problem, and if we like it, we'll fund it. And so it, the, the, the real challenge in our end, just in IT, for instance, the uh, Department of Defense does about $30 billion in IT a year. The global marketplace is around $3 trillion now. You can make the case in the 60s and 70s that we were pretty much the big role on the block, and if we put out a requirement, everybody would come running. Right now, that's not the case, and most of the real uh, interesting innovation is happening in small companies that have no interest really in working with the department because it's too hard, they don't have the money to market it, they don't understand how to do procurements and, and all the rest. So we're now stuck in a situation where to really ramp up the innovation, we need to come to them versus them coming to us, and the social media tools help us with that. The other thing, uh, DOD Techopedia, internally we're using this to bring together the science and technology programs we've already invested in with the combatant commands and the services who are looking to, to find solutions to capability gaps they have today. 
when we get the external part, the thought will be we could have industry and government participating in a wiki-based fashion to say, you know, here's the state of the practice of this technology area. Companies would be able to put a little bit of information about themselves and their technologies and directly link it. And this allows everybody to get uh, a much better understanding of, first, what our needs are, and, and then we could see who's actually out in the marketplace working that problem. So for about 20 minutes' worth of work, a small company can get their products in front of capability decision makers. Yeah, and uh, I think no, what's cool about Mel, this is uh, Steve Bressler from GovLoop. Uh, I was on a, a panel with uh, one of one of Noel's, uh partners in crime, Tammy, at the, this Open Government Conference this week. And uh, I think the lesson learned for the people trying to uh, get stuff done in Gov2.0 is really her story of kind of how they got Pekopedia to become such a success. Uh, Noel hasn't even talked about the fact that it's been on WhiteHouse.com. It's been, you know, been a big win all over the place. And this is really a, a project that they kind of kept under the radar for a little bit. Uh, Tammy talked a lot about, uh, you know, schmoozing inside the enterprise, you know, finding the people that would uh, love the project and give it uh, a little bit of love because this project, I think, had no budget and very few staff. Um, so I think that's half the battle, too, is, is navigating the internal enterprise. So the people who wouldn't like the project would squash it early. They kind of avoided those people and found the early champions. Um, got something up and going and piloted, and it's been kind of a raging success. Um, I don't know if you have any more to comment on that, Noel, about that whole process of getting uh, a startup project going in, in a government which often squashes innovation. Well, it, it, absolutely, and I'll link it back to the conversation that's going on GovLoop that was started by Jamie uh, Maynard uh, on the OGI conference. One of the challenges we had with DOD Techopedia is the policy barriers and most of them uh, for getting the external site up. We planned to do that last year, but there's about six policy barriers that really slow you down, and, and most of them are federal in nature. So one of the ways to get around that was to really put a higher level of visibility on those policy barriers. And the thought was, well, why don't we create a federal-wide conference that really highlights open government and really innovations bringing it to bear? So really this was Tammy's idea, this, this OGI conference, and Tammy and myself convinced 1105 and FCA and NDIA and all these other players to come into it, uh, and it ended up being a raging success. But the, the goal from our DOD Techopedia standpoint was first to get visibility for DOD Techopedia marketing without any dollars, uh, but also to address some of these policy barriers. Uh, the other thing, we worked a lot with Beth Novak's office uh, for the, the, the whole open government directive. Uh, we're now in the White House Innovations Gallery for that. Uh, we got the DefSecDefs award for continuous process improvement. We work with that group. So really, Tammy sort of has this uh, enterprise view uh, of how to make change happen. And the, the real key is, is it's got to be focused on a mission. So nobody really cares about uh, doing social software. They do care about solving the market research problem and acquisition, which is really what DOD Techopedia does. And if it just so happens to be a wiki that does it, great. Uh, but there's a whole lot of neat ways you can do marketing and really get your project going uh, without any dollars. Our first uh, step in DoD Techopedia, we were trying to get a pilot. We got absolutely no government agency that or in DoD to host this for it. I eventually went to my own personal web server for 10 bucks, bought a domain name, got a pilot going, uh, put an RFI out in FedBizOps.gov. We got 30 companies to participate, six labs and really showed that this idea would work. And that got in front of the uh, head of acquisition technology and logistics, who loved it, put money and leadership behind it, and we got a massive amount of, massive amount of effort going in the last year 
uh, the last administration, which is fairly rare to start a new test like that. No, I think that's um, that is a huge point because when we talk about how to leverage these kinds of technologies to solve business problems, that's what people want to focus on is, okay, so what's the business problem? What's the mission result that we're trying to accomplish? And there's not necessarily, and I found this in many agencies just from people I've talked to, there's not specific money set aside to go play with this or to experiment, but... Um, and, and if it's outside sort of the traditional realm of the defined IT project that's been identified in the budget, you have a real challenge there. So I think some of the, the workarounds, if you will, that you all did to get this thing launched um, and to get the, the leadership support is huge, and that's where I kind of think we need to go because right now there just seems to be um, a, seem a growing pocket of people that talk about how to do this, how to apply these technologies, what the benefits could be. But until you get, you know, some real, even if it's a pilot, um, some results that people see an actual, obviously, business benefit and benefit ultimately to the taxpayer, those are, are some of the challenges. And so right now a lot of, you know, what we're doing is talking about um, some of the things that we could do. But when you see success that you all have, um, like, like what you all have done, that makes it a lot easier for the rest of us. Well, so, in, I'm sorry, go ahead, Noel. Yeah, the other interesting thing, just to key off of Mary, the, the change I've seen this year versus last before the new administration came is the policy folks, you know, the privacy folks, the PRA folks, the security folks, the public affairs, you know, all, all these, these policies which have been stopping, everybody's now working on the problem, the records management issues. They're all aware that the world has shifted and they're trying to come to grips with it. So to me, that's a very encouraging sign and hopefully will make it easier for some of the other folks trying to get in the front door. Yeah, I don't think you can ignore the fact that the president and the administration is behind this, using it, pushing it, wants openness, collaboration. That does help our case. So this is Steve Lunsford. So, so let me ask a question. Beyond just the policy challenges, how much of this is, is kind of cultural and educational in terms of you have folks that kind of get it and that have started to use it and have started to kind of work around to, you know, to do some of these early successes, and you have other folks that just may not – understand it yet they don't understand that uh you know, you know something like twitter which they can feel is can be a waste of time or they don't understand you know why you should have a presence on facebook or they don't understand um you know how you can do uh some sort of crowdsourcing to to you know to generate ideas uh, how do you kind of get around some of that cultural and, and educational internal educational aspects of this well it, it really does go down to the mission focus one of the challenges we're now realizing in, in DOD is the word social, you know, social software, social media, social networking. That has a different connotation in our world. Social in our world means take a coffee break. And, and so you have the security folks and others looking at this saying, well, gosh, they're taking all this, band, you know, all this bandwidth for a coffee break. This isn't really valuable. And so we have to really show direct uh, value to the mission in, in, in a series of ways. We need to quantify that at some level to sort of broach this idea that the word social is used in an academic context for how people gather and, and interact versus, you know, the traditional use. And I also think it's, you know, it's about how are you going to make it easier for, when we're talking about acquisition, the operational contracting people to get their job done. At the end of the day, you know, we talk about, collaborative technologies, and wouldn't it be cool if we had, you know, an expanded network that consisted of people from across the government and across the industry that had great ideas, and we could take advantage of that and do better requirements building in an open environment. And, you know, right now they're, they're real skeptical, saying, well, I'm very busy, you know, I'm just, my head's down, I've got to get this acquisition out, I don't know if I have time to manage an open, expanded environment 
um, and to try to filter through some of that. And, oh, by the way, how is it going to help me at the end of the day, you know, get that acquisition out? So it really needs to be, I think, framed from not only does it help the agency get its mission done, but also how does it help that person get their job done? Um, And that, to me, is sort of the key to sell it to a lot of the folks right now so that they will try it and they will go out there and say, okay, let's, you know, give this a shot and see what how it works, what the benefit is, and then move on. You know, what lessons did we learn, how do we improve, and how do we just keep going on this? Definitely. This is Steve Russell here. But, uh, I mean, I think what helps, too, and what's been helpful for me talking to, to other people in this space is thinking back of when we've done this before, so when uh, other movements have happened, like, when everyone thought email was a waste of time and now everyone has it. You know, everyone thought government websites were a waste of time, but of course everyone got one eventually. So I think you know, using those type of examples as well as the, the personal life ones. For example, like when I go shopping now to buy a new computer, uh, in the past I may have just gone to Best Buy in Circuit City, two brick stores and walked in, had five choices and walked away. But now to me it's a social experiment. You know, I go on Amazon, find all the reviews. Um, I get input in from these different mechanisms of my friends from Facebook to Twitter. Um, and I, you know, I'm buying something and procuring something, um, but it's done in a much different way than it was five or ten years ago. And I think most people are doing that in their personal life. They're buying a little bit different using kind of uh, social experiences on the web. So bringing that inside the enterprise is doable if you can kind of remind them that this is how they're living the rest of their life. Yep. I get asked all the time, you know, how do you have time to do GovLoop and to, you know, go on Twitter? And kind of my answer is the value and the benefit that I get from expanding my network and meeting people through these forms. I think, you know, I've met every one of you um, through either GovLoop or Twitter, or actually, you know, at least connected with you. And the, the folks that I deal with primarily today where I'm getting really incredible ideas to improve the way that the government can um, – perform acquisition and the way that we can use that uh, large amount of brain power that's out there are through these tools. And so to me it's made my job uh, easier, if you will, and I've got access to more people than I ever would have. And so I try to frame it for them that way as well as, hey, you know what, this expands your network infinitely. Um, and you can get the answer to almost any problem pretty quickly, you know, through these connections. So I think this is um, it's something to look at strategically as well, you know, beyond just the tactical what Web 2.0 tools are, tools are out there. But strategically, um, you know, Kim Cobes talks about the network perspective, and to me that's kind of the key for the strategic piece of this is connecting the people and all of this intelligence. And there's a question I have. This is Adriel for both of you, uh, maybe first uh, Noel and then Mary, you can pick it up. It sounds like uh, through use of social software, you're getting uh, more exposed and having more interactions with maybe smaller companies that normally wouldn't want to deal with the federal government, uh, or maybe uh, the federal government doesn't even know they're there. They uh, operate in a totally different space. Now, what I'm interested in is how, you know, at this point, how successful are those companies in actually giving contracts, and then are there issues with the timeliness of uh, you know, of the process, because I know a lot of these smaller companies work on, you know, one project could kill them financially if, if it's too long before they're paid. Israel, that's a great question. And, and let me start with uh, the U.K. Ministry of Defense. Uh, they, they're really who we took the ideas for DefenseSolutions.gov. Dr. Helen Almy, who we got to come to this conference, 
has this site, uh, Defense Research Suppliers Portal, which is www.science.mod.uk. And she's got something for their science and technology community there where they can solicit ideas on any topic. And within 15 days, the uh, requester gets an answer of yes or no. And within 30 days, they're, up, they're under contract up to 200,000 pounds. Now, the really cool part about that is the operators in the field who is going to be using it, the logisticians who are going to be maintaining it, and the program managers in the science and technology world who are going to run that program have all signed off on it before they've made that decision. So there they really do address that problem, and they protect the intellectual property where they get folks under contract very quickly. And that's a, that's a key problem in our world. Uh, what we're hoping with, this, with the other transactions authorities, uh, which is sort of a the way the Defense Department, I know DHS and National Science Foundation have it, but not very many others, which is one of the mixed feelings comments on the GovLoop part. Not everybody has that. Uh, it's sort of a, something to get things in the field quickly to stop folks from dying. But we're hoping we could take advantage of that to get these small companies uh, funding lots quicker than they normally would get through the, the regular channels. And, and that is a big deal because if nobody's getting paid out of this, there's not going to be interest to do it. The same thing is going to apply with uh, the external techopedia part. That's really absolutely the goal is to get small companies to see very quickly what it is we're interested in and they can get their stuff in front of us. But if they don't actually get a benefit from it and we're not able to be agile enough to meet their needs, uh, that's a real problem. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think the other transactions authorities is and what you all have done to get some of those solutions from small and emerging businesses is the innovation that we need to address uh, some of the, the challenges we have in the traditional procurement methods. And, you know, because it is normally uh, a lengthy process to, you know, buy services as an example, and if you're not, you know, within sort of that federal um, network and, and, and process and, and know how to deal with the government, it is uh, costly and, and a turnoff, you know, to small businesses. So. One of the interesting discussions um, we had on GovLoop on the requirements development process and kind of opening that up um, and making it more collaborative from the beginning so that the industry had a chance to shape, you know, kind of the way the government thinks about what and how they want to buy. One of those discussions was around the, the small business inclusion and would this open and collaborative process actually benefit or hurt small business. And uh, the thought there was, the benefit side would be it allows the small businesses that maybe haven't done business with the government, like in Noel's example, to come in and, you know, provide information, provide input, shape the requirements, um, give us the information that the government needs to uh, define better what we need. And then on the, the negative side, it, it, some of the thought was, well, if it's going to be open and collaborative, larger businesses might be able to throw more resources at that conversation and potentially shape and steer it, you know, to their direction. So that was a really interesting discussion that we had, and those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about, how to fairly, you know, manage that process, because the current rules and regs are obviously all about um, fairness and integrity and honesty in the process, so we still need to apply those principles when we open this stuff up. Yeah, this is Steve Lonzo. I, th I think that the interesting thing, Mary, is that, you know, a lot of small businesses um, – do I mean, they may see something that that, they, that can be applicable that they would want to uh, submit themselves for, and it's just really really difficult. I've heard this recently from some folks um, directly. It's just very difficult if you don't understand kind of how to work the process right now. 
you kind of feel left out unless you have another partner that uh, you know has already been in it. That's a typical government contractor that then may sub or whatever. Uh, it's kind of hard to figure that out. So I think yeah. anything that can be done uh, to simplify that and to 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 have this idea, you know, one of the ideas that was thrown out at OGI, I thought that was interesting, at least in the way it was presented, was kind of like, you know, how do you get to a point where we are encouraging kind of like an app store for America, where anybody can go in and kind of start to build things that are useful to either sell through to agencies to help meet a mission or for end user, you know, for things that are of interest to the citizenry. So um, I think anything we can do to move towards that direction to kind of demystify the process of government contracting would be helpful. Yep, I agree. Well, in the federal federal bridge program, I think is the first step in that, where sort of eSpace has this front end arm that uh, allows companies to come in and test on a set of uh, interoperability requirements and put their product in there, almost like an app store type of model. It's just started. I think they put like 50k into it, but it's sort of the beginning to say uh, right now it's just for for the ICE, the the intelligence community, but we could certainly look at broadening that to be, you know, more of the whole national security apparatus and minimums to say if you meet these needs and you, your thing fits in here, you're able to stick your product right in the store and people can buy it right off of there. And that does sort of move towards that, that app store model. Uh, that's, that's really neat. And uh, I'd like to hear your take too, Mary and Noel, on, on free software. I think that's an interesting piece of, of all of this is uh, more and more technology is free. And, uh, you see more use of it, you know, more and more from the White House on the OpenGov dialogue, for example. They used like, idea scale free software to crowdsource and uh, mixed ink, another collaborative free technology to do the last section of a moderated kind of wiki slash voting. Uh, you know, where, where does free technologies come in and, you know, does free need to be bidded out too? You know, does idea scale need to compete against the five other frees? I think it gets into really interesting questions. Yeah, I think it, it really does, and um, you know that's also a shift in government thinking because you know free is taboo uh, to us traditionally. But as we look at these applications that are free, we all know that they've got their limita- limitations, and they're good, you know, for certain purposes. Um, and I believe the work that's been going on to uh, negotiate all the terms of service, if you will, for the providers today that want to deal in the government space that offer. Um, free platforms is really important, and I, I was having a conversation with somebody at OGI about sort of how we evolve the single instance of terms of service that we're negotiating for every uh, individual um, supplier or platform into sort of a broader what are the government um, kind of terms and conditions that would apply to any of these free platforms, and then how do we get sort of a, the seal of approval or a stamp on those sites so that the government folks that are interested in using these sites would know that they're, you know, they've already kind of been approved and they're available for use. Um, and that's, you know, another, another thing that we want to work on so that we're not running down this path as much as we don't have to, to go through traditional procurement practices or processes uh, to get to something. I think that's it's certainly a big shift um, and something we need to work through. Well, in two, two thoughts on that. I think there's, first off, what, there's a differentiation between free and open source, and, and I think there should be a much greater push towards using open source solutions, not as much for the cost as for the interoperability benefits. 
uh, you get a dramatically better uh, uh, set of standards, usually in open source software, than you're going to do in proprietary software, be it free or paid. And so that's a slice, you know, things like a WordPress, which they use on the OSTP blog for open government. That's free, but it's really open source, and there's, a, there's sort of a distinction there. The other challenge with the free software is, is back to the policy stuff. And I'll just give you one, uh, records management. If, if we do a blog on a federal site, at a minimum, it, whether we have a discussion of whether these blog posts and comments are records or not, that's somewhat irrelevant in the fact that I have the, the database on my server and I can give National Archives and Records Administration a copy of it anytime I want. Now, if I have my official stuff on Facebook, for instance, and for whatever reason a post gets deleted, there's no official record of it, and the only way you would get it is going to Facebook's data structure. And currently, there's no real answer to that dilemma. There's no way you could do records of it. The FOIA isn't a problem there, but certainly there's a set of policy issues that, that you run into barriers when you're doing, say, commercial social networking services. I, I certainly think we need to figure out ways around all of these, but it, it's, it's, again, one of these sort of changes in the world that everybody's struggling with. Now, do you guys uh, see any move? I know in the city of San Francisco, the uh, kind of open government uh, team is talking about having uh, contracts that embrace uh, open source as well as uh, government-owned data. I mean, it, that's always a problem with uh, uh, outside vendors is they take something that's originally government data like uh, voting software or we just had a big uh, uh, snafu with uh, uh, transit uh, route uh, the basically the time uh, data from uh, one of the vendors that they, they didn't want to release that to anyone saying it was proprietary data when the buses were arriving. Uh, is there any moves that you guys see in DOD or GSA to kind of embrace this idea that uh, government data belongs to the government even if a contractor has done something with it in the interim? This, I think, is one of the really great things that the whole transparency effort has given us. It's, it Combine that with uh, Tim O'Reilly's idea of making government as a platform and build simple things that could be uh, leveraged and innovated upon. I think in the past we would be far more likely to have a one-stop solution where a vendor takes care of everything and gives us the answer that we've already decided ahead of time. The movement towards transparency where all the data is open and accessible, uh, if you use that in your design and build simple solutions where the data is available that others can now innovate on top of, I think that's a dramatic shift, and it's right in line with what you're talking about. The way you innovate is you provide the data and make it available. So things like data.gov are, are certainly the first case of it, but I think if we take this notion of building uh, uh, in an open and transparent way, you really do much more of the simple apps where the data is now made available for others to innovate on versus the closed larger scale systems where the vendor controls what we consider probably to be government data. So I have a question on that. Um, I've talked to quite a few people on this subject about making data available. And is it the point of just making any and all data available, or do we really need to kind of wonder, you know, what do the citizens care about? What would they want to do with that data so that we can make it available in a meaningful way rather than just saying, hey, we posted all this data available, now have at it, you know, hope you find it useful. Yeah, I know that in San Francisco one of the things that uh, folks in the Department of Technology and the kind of brainstorming team is looking at is how to uh, allow citizens to comment on and rate uh, data sets that are released to actually ask for specific data if you know you know that, that what you want as a developer is 
specific street mapping information, for example, because like like GSI, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, ge- geospatial data has so much, uh, so many layers to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from sewers to uh, street repair histories to uh, the um, uh, zoning maps, and you look at that and you could just dump all of it, or you can kind of uh, put it out there and let people uh, sift through what's actually important to them. So I think that uh, it is important. You don't want to just have a data dump and no one actually doing anything with it. So some of what Web 2.0 brings, though, is the ability to have citizens actually uh, uh, add to the process of what's most important and let things sift up. Uh, it's the same way if you look at, like, with commenting systems, how the White House did their commenting system, where they allow all comments uh, onto, uh, I think that was when during the transition, but they had a comment moderation software where citizens were able to vote things up and down, and so the more popular comments would appear close to the top, because you could totally get lost in the amount of data that government has. I think was it one of our guests uh, talking about the uh, uh, data that government has being like the uh, uh, the scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with the dusty <laughs> warehouse that has the Ark of the Covenant in it. And definitely you don't want to just throw people uh, thousands and thousands of boxes and say, open them and find out what's in them and, uh, you know, do great things with them. You have to have some ability to, uh, I guess, analyze and harness uh, the, the power of that data. And I think so, the other challenge we have in government is we don't know across the government what we already own and what we already have and then how to leverage that and take advantage of it so that we can, you know, maximize reuse and what's already been purchased. That's one of our huge challenges. In looking at the data.gov and the IT dashboard, I think that sort of gives you a sense of what the new administration is looking to do. There's dramatic amounts of information on data.gov, and I think what the White House is looking to do with the IT dashboard is give citizens a simple view, in that case, into the the IT investments and, and, and what they've gotten from it. But their goal is not to make the best, application possible is to make something that's reasonable, simple, reasonably usable that citizens can glom onto, but the real goal is to allow the innovation and industry to come and do things with that data that they would have never thought of. Folks like the Sunlight Foundation to come in and dig and map it to, you know, for instance, congressional lobbying uh, totals or something like that. So, so the idea is to provide all of this data to give a simple view or dashboard in that case of how to use it, but to really hope that in the very near future uh, folks in industry do a far better job with it. So it's really not the public Joe citizen sitting in a subway in Iowa. It's it's more various stakeholders in the process. So you can imagine people dealing with EPA data, it might be Sierra Club and you know others in there. So 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 I think the slices of the public who are interested in each of these will probably do things far more creative than we the federal government do. So, so here's a question, though, Noel. Do you think the government, though, has a responsibility to not just publish this data and hope that certain apps or certain things are, are done with it, but to look at, to the point that Mary made, what sort of things should be pushed out, or what kind of, you know, what kind of results? And should there be some applications or some things that they actually that the government takes responsibility for trying to build and push out? Well, I, I think that's a good question, and there, there's also a set of risks for it, right? So, I mean, our normal way of doing information collections is we have a specific goal that the information collection is supposed to be about in a specific use. And, and now we're in a world where the data can be used in mashed up to do anything. So you can envision, you know, fear scenarios in DHS, for instance, where 
you you take their their investment dollars and map it against uh, risk profiles, and can somebody come up with an easy app that says, okay, based on the amount of spending, here's the highest value targets that DHS thinks is in the country. I mean, those kind of things we wouldn't want to see coming out uh, of the data resources. So I think part of the issue is in providing all this data, what can people come up with that we probably didn't want them to? That's, that's certainly a question. Uh, but the other thing goes back, if you're doing a good open government, the participation and the collaboration is really what leverages that transparency. So the citizens are no longer in a situation where they consume federal services. They should be rolling up their sleeves and getting to work, and they should be helping the agencies and prioritizing and doing policy making and saying, here's what we need, start acting on it. So, so the answer to that question I don't think comes from the government. And, and an open government model, that answer comes from the citizens interacting with the agency. You know, the one good example I was talking to a friend the other day about is for years people have complained about USA Jobs, kind of the portal that people use to apply for federal jobs. Um, and Monster actually runs it, and people always suggest new features and kind of generally complain about it. Right. Um, but, you know, if we release the data on that online, there's a whole ecosystem of, uh, of job boards, for example. There's career builder, there's competitors, there's nonprofits, like uh, I think there's one uh, public technology jobs, uh, associations have them, universities too. So what if we release the USA Jobs data online and made it mashable? Um, maybe people can create better, more useful information and sites and apps around government jobs so we get more people to apply for government jobs and, and that starts solving kind of our workforce needs at a real cheap rate. So I think there's a million different ways uh, this could evolve and we're still so early. It's kind of fun to, to come up with hypotheses of where the collapse will, will become. Absolutely. I think it's partly what we're talking about uh, regarding Twitter and, you know, in two years, what will be the software that's getting blocked by government agencies or what will be uh, evolving that people actually use to get their work done if uh, the culture hasn't changed enough. It's the same way with what apps uh, will actually come uh, from government or be built up around government data and uh, which of these services will really take off. Do people want a better way to get a government job? Do they want a better way as a small contractor to get a government contract? It'll be, I mean, I, I think none of us can probably imagine uh, or properly hypothesize in two years what what will be the most popular services or what will be the most popular data sets. I don't think anyone ever realized that um, uh, we'd all be using these car navigators built on something that was originally uh, military satellite data. Yeah, that's a great example of uh, opening up data for the public use, isn't it, GPS? And, also and I, I think, uh, I mean, I was actually, uh, I think I just learned a year ago that that was originally government data. I don't think I'd, I'd known that. Uh, I think maybe it was somewhere with the hubbub around Google Maps and how, uh, say, you know, what level of GPS are they going to get to, you know, how, how close are they going to get to being able to see into people's homes uh, or to be able to see, you know, uh, individual level data instead of just being able to tell that something is a car. And that brought up a lot about, you know, what the government capabilities are and where that data originally came from. And it's just, uh, yeah, everything from Google Earth to your TomTom is... Well, uh, the credit card swiping thing at the gas station was originally from a missile program. Really? Yeah. So, and I guess opening that up as open source will create tremendous value rather than uh, allowing um, 
single companies to, to greatly profit off of something that's basically a government-funded innovation. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that in the, the health world, this has always been a uh, uh, there's been a vigorous debate over uh, government-funded health studies and whether or not uh, private health companies are uh, becoming rich off of them. It seems like in the technology environment, though, we have uh, more promise uh, for openness, transparency, and actual uh, uh, growth, uh, multivariable growth, out of something that's originally a, a government data set. Well, and that's a good point about the, the – uh, there's a number of open source advocates who are now trying to – uh, get a movement to have all government furnished data or applications be released as open source. So versus, you know, when we have to hire, a, you know, Lockheed or Buzan or whomever else to build us an application, the question is how do they deliver it? And the answer they want to see is we deliver it as open source software. They make the code available, and everybody can then use and leverage it through, you know, various things like SourceForge.mil and others. And that's sort of an interesting approach, I think. And is there a, a fight or a pushback there from the major contractors that might be doing a lot and saying, "Well, wait a minute, we part of our uh, part of our spec for this project is actually the fact that we may be able to do something later on with the data ourselves." There's more of a pushback from the major software vendors. At least the last time uh, Department of Defense looked into this, we were inundated with lawyers from various companies to uh, make sure we didn't <laughs> do something they didn't think was in their interest. Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is, you know, what did the government pay for in this instance versus what the company might claim to be sort of their intellectual-owned, you know, we developed this, we've got a, a, a patent or a trademark on it, and, you know, we're using um, our solution to help you. So, you know, we, we, we've gotten into some of those discussions on a couple of contracts. It's really interesting the way that those can play out. That's a good point. So, Mary, from from the GSA's perspective, since you have to deal, you know, you deal with so many different agencies, how do you kind of drive some of this out, um, not just internally within the GSA, but how do you start to drive this out to your clients, so to speak? Um, what we're trying to do is, and I think the the GovLoop community actually on the Acquisition 2.0 group is actually the starting point where we're starting to talk about the potential, the possibilities, real applications, and uh, pilot some of this. Um, we're looking at taking an acquisition, you know, through a, uh, I should say a mock acquisition, through a, um, a pilot process potentially with the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council where we could say, okay, you know, from beginning to end, what are the opportunities here and where would we be able to see real value in uh, leveraging some of these technologies to open up and and make the acquisition process more collaborative. And so that's where we're going to start so that people can then, you know, see how it could actually apply rather than sitting around talking about different uh, tools or, you know, the what if. Let's just take one of these through and, and see what we can do with it. And we've just got a couple of minutes here left. I want to see if uh, do you guys have any uh, last comments you'd like to make, um, Noel and then Mary. Well, well, I think that the thing that I'll, I'll sort of go back to Tammy's uh, uh, session, the culture session at OGI, it's, it's really if you're having struggles and trying to get this done, you're going to get a lot of no's. But no doesn't really mean no. It means just no, not this way. 
And the goal is to find another way around the no. And if you get another no, to find another way around that. So focus on the outcome, focus on the goal, and don't accept no's as the end of the road. Just accept them as I need to make a turn to get to where I'm going. Yeah, I think a lot of times a no might actually just be uh, I don't understand or give me more information or frame this a little bit better for me and tell me what the problem is you're trying to solve and let's figure out a way to do that. But I've seen a turnaround um, even internally, you know, um, the folks that might normally tell you no or say, no, we, you know, we can't do it that way, are actually now saying, well, tell me what you want to do, and I'll find a way to make it happen. So that's been really encouraging. So I think, I think you know, and again, having support from this administration is just huge um, for us to make some of these strides. And I think we're, for the, the large size of the government, I think we're making some strides pretty quickly, actually. So I'm, I'm excited and encouraged and you know, the OGI conference was great because it was full of people that have a passion and an energy around this and improving government, and those are the kinds of people that we need to, you know, get involved, stay involved, and show how things can happen. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Mary and Noel, for coming uh, on the show today, and thank you to uh, Steve Ressler and Steve Lunsford uh, for uh, helping out with uh, hosting the show. Uh, if folks want to uh, be uh, featured as guests on Government 2.0 Radio, you can uh, ping myself uh, at Adriel Hampton uh, or uh, Steve uh, Ressler at, at GovLoop or Steve Lunsford at DS Lunsford uh, and also our producer, uh, Megan1018, on Twitter. Uh, let any of us know if you'd like to be a guest. Uh, you can also uh, email uh, founder at govloop.com uh, or me, uh, Adriel H., at yahoo.com, and we'd be happy to uh, discuss having you as a guest on the show. Uh, it's a pretty uh, freewheeling format. We don't do a lot of uh, pre-production, but we do have some great conversations. So I want to thank our guests again today, and this uh, show will be available as a podcast at gov20radio.com in about 15 minutes. Thanks, all. Hey, goodbye. thank you. Thanks so Thanks, much, Thanks, Noel. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.